Hey, welcome to Faith and Culture Now. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Steve Hunter. Dr. Hunter has a um, PhD in psychology, and he is uh, the program director at Criswell College for the Bachelor of Arts in Psychology program, as well as the Master of Arts in Counseling. And uh, he's got a lot of really great insights and advice and stories with all kinds of issues dealing with mental health. And uh, today we're here to talk specifically about the issue of suicide and of, uh, with regard to what brings about that kind of behavior. And so with that said, Steve, I want to turn it over to you to start telling your story a little bit. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Scott, I'm really happy to be here and so glad that we have the privilege to work together at Crispel College. And just to clean up a couple of things, uh, I, I have an EDD, and that's in counseling <laughs> with uh, emphasis and concentration in psychology. And so yeah, anyway, good. just uh, <laughs> keep the credentials front and center. But absolutely, a lot of research uh, in the area of suicide. I'm just glad, first of all, that we're talking about it. Glad that you're here listening as well because the most important thing that we can do when it comes to the topic of suicide, and I really look at uh, depression, anxiety, suicide together, mm-hmm. um, the most important thing that we can do is talk about it. And so Certainly. I guess go ahead and jump right into the deep end, right? Jump right into the deep okay, end. Okay, so I'll <laughs> jump into the deep end and uh, it takes a little little bit of uh, motivation to first share my story. I've been researching and studying the areas of theology, counseling, and psychology for probably 25, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And um, even with that said, well, how transparent do you want me to be? I guess I'll go ahead and just take uh, take a leap here. But I do struggle with depression and anxiety. At the age of 16, um, my I grew up in a upper middle class family. Um, to give you an idea, I got a brand new Z28, hey. 354 barrel, I mean loaded out Those are uh, nice. Camaro. Yeah. And on my 16th birthday, I pulled the car into the garage, shut all of the doors, mm-hmm. and I started the engine, popped in my Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon tape, and then that was going to be the end mm-hmm. for me. I waited till everyone left, and then uh, all of a sudden... Uh, the door, the garage door opened, and then the sun started shining into yeah. the garage. And I could look up and see the carbon monoxide fumes mixed in with those rays. And soon thereafter, my the car door opened. It was my dad. They'd gone to the store and just coincidentally, right, Mm -hmm. returned home because they forgot something. And then when they opened the garage and then my dad went to the car, opened the door, grabbed me by the shirt collar, Mm -hmm. pulled me out of the car. I couldn't stand and pulled me out of the garage into the yard. And he was like, you know, Steve, what's wrong with you? Uh, Mm -hmm. You don't ever start a car in a closed garage. And I said, well, I was just 
want to listen to my new Pink Floyd tape. And that was all that was all that was said. Yeah. Nothing ever was said from that point forward. Didn't really even think about the topic of suicide until four years ago when I got permission from my older sister to share her story. She's a retired Navy nurse. Her husband is a retired Navy submarine commander, 30 years in the Navy, both retired. And four years ago, my sister um, attempted to take her own life by suicide. And miraculously, and so thankfully, my my brother-in-law found her, rushed her to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, She got all of the help that she needed with counseling and medication and she's doing better than I've ever known my sister. She's four years older to me, but I'll never forget Mm -hmm. her husband. If you're a submarine commander and all you submarine commanders out there, what that means is nothing. You are unshakable. And I do remember him looking me in the eye and and telling me, Steve, you know, I've never been more scared Mm. in my life. And so... So what happened is this, and I was thinking about this coming over because yeah. we're coming up during the, uh, for Christmas, this mm-hmm. Christmas time of year. In 2016, three years ago, I um, they live in Houston, and I drove to see them and sit down with both of them. And I had it in my mind to tell my sister, I want to hear your story. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas, but I want to hear your story and share my story, and then guess what? What do you think about our stories? Very, very similar. In fact, they were identical. And so the point is this, I think we can learn to suffer in silence. Our stories were Mm -hmm. identical. And I didn't know what she was struggling and suffering with, she didn't with me, but really at that moment was a bond and She's probably um, like one of the closest people to me on the planet. And plus, she is family. And so I'll use that as a springboard to share my story so that um, I do believe the patterns are set from a young age. And that's part of my perspective um, on suicide and suicidal ideation, how we deal with pain and significant loss, specifically abuse and trauma. Mm -hmm. It's set at a young age, and then we deal with all significant subsequent loss exactly the same. It creates a foundation, but I'll talk a little more about that foundation in a minute. But I remember the moment uh, um, just... uh, what I received at home, um, just criticism or condemnation, and uh, and then with all that was going on at home and the things that I was hearing at home uh, were quite, I think, difficult to hear. Yeah, sure. I think uh, you know, and those are your such such informative years when you're a teenager, right around sixteen, mm-hmm. you know, and whatnot, and. Uh, uh, your your brain is really beginning to solidify at that point into a lot of uh, patterns that sort of will persist for the rest of your life. It's true, and so it really it it really manifested at sixteen, and really 
um, around around about the age of 12, 13 is really was a difficult time at home. Some of the things that um, I was hearing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, things like I wish you'd never been born and uh, when are you ever going to learn? And I guess really the one I wish you had never been born is probably what just... I mean, was I think most painful, but I I would go to school and then I would be bullied at school. That probably went on for about two years and I learned to suffer in silence at home because Mm -hmm. it was a lot about appearances and then I suffered in silence at school with bullies, Mm -hmm. a group of four or five guys and then it was in junior high gym class. I think that's probably where the devil himself dwells in junior high gym yeah. class for boys yeah, and nobody wants to be it's and, true yeah. mm-hmm. so they would uh, wait for me every, every day when it was time to dress and then you know I was pulled into the shower and beaten and spit on and urinated on and then just called I think what was really most painful at, at that time is that girls would pick on me it was one thing for guys Mm-hmm. Um, to pick on you. It's another thing for girls to pick on you. Oh, and yeah, so sure. they, you know, I was accused of being a fag. I was also called a lesbian by girls who would then pretend to kind of walk alongside an arm and arm and mm-hmm. people would go, oh, well, look at the lesbians. And then would pin me up against the locker and basically just knee me. I just remember the brute. That's what I remember mm-hmm. most outside of just dropping everything in the middle of the hall and then just being left alone in the aftermath once the bell rang to pick up my things and then get to class. And so I really felt something, yeah. I, I really felt like something broke, that something broke within me. And that's really where my perspective on suicide begins. I know it sounds quite unusual, but I just call it the birth the birth of a suicidal soul. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is um, when there's trauma and abuse, different kinds of abuse, whatever type of abuse, um, I do think that um, trauma, it makes a significant impact. And sometimes trauma, it makes people stronger. I think sometimes trauma can do great harm. Yeah, certainly. And when, you know, it doesn't matter if mm-hmm. the trauma takes place over five minutes or two years. You know, the single event of the trauma or the continuation of that trauma, no matter how long it is, when it stops, the results of that trauma sometimes have long-lasting, you know, years and years of effects that um, you you've got to work through, but also that because of what you went through, uh, a lot of people, I think, don't even know how to begin to work through that trauma. You know what? That's a great point. I had, I mentioned right at the beginning that I've been researching, studying these areas for years, but when I started uh, learning about trauma, the research of trauma, even the neuroscience of trauma, um, and then received advanced training in trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really where uh, it was this great epiphany and I was able to fill in the gaps. And I'll I'll tell you what I mean by that because 
Um, for me personally, I think what then impacts uh, how how does this how does then trauma and abuse um, connect with someone who struggles with suicide, suicidal ideation? I and I think it's this. This is the game changer. Is that I blame myself for the trauma. The mm-hmm. trauma is my fault. The abuse is my fault. And I think that yeah. that's then what locks me into this cycle. And so... Um, well, it's part of victim shaming, right? I mean, you know, you blame yourself, but you feel like it's your fault that you're the uh-huh. victim. And uh, I, I think, you know, I read over and over again when people are in situations where they're bullied at school or things like that, mm-hmm. or, you know, when people are, um, you know, sexually abused, they're taught that this is your fault. You're the reason why this happened and not the real victim of something that someone else did and they were wrong for what they did to you. I took this lie when um, when I blamed myself for the abuse, I took a lie and I embedded it in the deepest part of my heart and soul and it mm-hmm. was this lie. The lie is, and I've struggled with it for my entire life before I really started researching this and then also have the other side. I have my theory and perspective, but also, well, how do you intervene? What do you do? And so that's a great question, too. And I have that mm-hmm. side of it. I've been working on that side as well. And um, I think I have a pretty good plan or intervention. I have people that have come up and said to me, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And so I yeah. know that um, the intervention side has proven to be effective for me personally, but also some others. Mm-hmm. I've had the privilege of being able to serve. But what happened is I took this lie um, based on the abuse. I'm not worthy of love or life. And I took that lie and I embedded it deep in my heart and soul. So what happened was that from that point forward, I built my life, my identity. Really, the essence of who I am was based on a lie. The soul dysmorphia is... No matter what the accomplishments or accolades or what people tell me, I still look in the mirror and see someone who is despicable, someone who is not worthy of love Mm -hmm. or life. And so that abuse, it breaks some things. It distorts my um, ability to see myself for who I really am. The other thing on how it relates to suicide is it... I would say devastates my ability to effectively deal with pain. I think those of us who struggle with suicide, we experience pain, see pain different from normal people. And that's Mm -hmm. really where I then start to plug in my perspective on on suicide, if you want to hear that. No, that makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, I've known people that have struggled with suicide, and... um, in the midst of those struggles, they'll share things. And in my mind, there's no way for me to comprehend really from their perspective what's really going on. Uh, Because as someone who hasn't really dealt with that, I really can't understand Uh from, from their perspective what that pain is like. And so I look at pain and I go, well, yeah, you just you know, you just get yeah, over it, but yeah. you can't tell someone who's suicidal, right. just get over it. Right. That's not going to help them at all because they can't even if they want to. I think that's good because um, that's that's really the piece that I want to help with is just understanding that perspective because the person yeah. 
um, who is struggling with suicide can't see beyond their own pain. At that time, I think, there's another thing that happens, and I become pain-centered, so that Mm -hmm. everything is focused on pain. That is avoiding pain, escaping pain, everything to numb pain, pain centered. And I keep putting my hands like this because mm-hmm. that's my my perspective, right? Yeah. So that um, it's enclosed. I, I would even call it a prison of pain. And so if I was going to draw it out, I would make a circle um, because it's enclosed. Mm-hmm. And I'm here in the center. And then I would put a north, south, east, and west. And so south, I would put past pain. Everything um, describes pain, north, south, east, west. Past pain, present pain, possible pain in the future, perpetual pain that never ends. So I'll just briefly touch on each one of those. So I talked about past pain, that trauma and abuse Centered. So I touched on that one. Um, and then East would be present pain. Mm-hmm. Present pain is pain and responsibility and expectations and pressure. But present pain, um, it focuses on addiction. Addiction, the definition of addiction to me is what I just mentioned the people, places, things that I depend on to numb pain, avoid pain, escape pain, feel better, and ultimately self-destructive ways. Sure. So in the present, my goal is to numb past pain and every way that I am trying does not work. Whatever I do, Um, through various addictions, it actually magnifies the pain. The addiction can become more painful and chaotic than the original pain that I'm attempting to numb. Yeah, certainly. And I think um, just to, to sort of hit on this with the idea of addiction, you know, I mean, I think most, especially in America, it seems like most everybody deals with some kind of an addiction, Yes. you know. And uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, that addiction comes in the form of, uh, you know, something to just sort of cope with daily struggles, whether it's, you know, cigarettes or, you know, whether it's caffeine, you know, you have to have your coffee. If you don't have that Starbucks in the morning or you don't have that fountain Coke or whatever, uh, you know, it's hard to get through the day. But um, when you have these addictions, you know, like you say, they they lead to your destruction. You know, they're, they're not healthy for you ultimately. But when people try to break those addictions, if they don't have something foundational to sort of help overcome that addiction, they just trade the first addiction for another addiction. And that second addiction ends up being just as destructive, sometimes more destructive than the first addiction. Yeah, you're really smart. I need to be quiet and just listen to you, I think. Oh, but, no, no. you know, we don't, we don't talk about, I do. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just so privileged to be a part of Criswell College to even talk about today's go-to addictions, which mm-hmm. are um, food, junk food, fast food that feeds obesity, which is the main literally feeder of obesity, mm-hmm. which is one of the top, killers in the U.S. is heart attack and stroke 
um, depression, anxiety, suicide. These are the top global epidemics, certainly national epidemics. Heart attack and stroke, depression, anxiety, suicide, they're both global epidemics. So, mm -hmm. fast food, junk food, don't talk about that. Internet addiction, for example, mm -hmm. social media, cell phone addiction, um, internet pornography. Yeah, so just I want to mention that last piece is because it's what if um, if we're surrounded by pain and trapped in pain, it's that last piece on the west side is perpetual pain and the A descriptive word is all-consuming. So that the person who struggles with suicide um, believes that there is no way out, there is no possible way out Mm -hmm. and that the pain is all-consuming, and so there's this hopelessness, helplessness, despair that then completes that cycle or shuts the door on the prison. And so I would like to talk about then, at that point, what happens in the center, but I want to hear any comments that you uh, might have. No, this makes really good sense, you know, and I think that what I would probably wonder or maybe theorize is that if you're locked in this prison, your brain is not functioning as it should, and as such, you're probably feeling out of control of your own life, but also out of control of what you can do to get out of the prison. You feel trapped, you're helpless, but uh, I think it causes you to probably not think clearly, which might want be one of the things that leads to you know making things like suicide feel like an acceptable alternative because you can't even really clearly wrap your mind around what's going on in that prison that you're stuck in. Yeah, and so I can describe that, and so thanks, because that's a great segue, because it makes sense to me. I'm glad it makes sense to you. I'm glad it makes <laughs> sense to one other person. But I, I, will tell, I will identify the center then, and once again, focused on pain, pressurized pain. And the A descriptive word is agony. So it's agonizing. So when you trap pain and enclose pain, isolate pain, what happens is it begins to concentrate. It begins to pressurize. And what, happened, what happens, the best descriptor word for me is agony, agonizing. So it feels like this. Mm -hmm. It feels like you are burning alive. It feels like you are being crushed. It feels like you are being smothered. It feels like you are drowning, gasping for air and unable to get any air in your lungs. It feels like this profound emptiness and loneliness that squeezes. And the word that comes to mind to me is it crushes. And that, to me, then concentrates suicidal ideation, focuses suicidal ideation. So suicide, actually call it sweet suicide. It mm -hmm. becomes the best option that actually makes sense, the best only option to end the pain. And the thought is this, the feeling is this, at that most agonizing moment, that when the pain is most excruciating, I can't take the pain, not another day, not another hour, 
not another minute, mm-hmm. not another second. I can't live my life. I cannot live this life. Not another day, not another hour, not another minute, not another second in this. The gun is in the glove compartment. The rope is in the garage. The alcohol and pills are in the cabinet. Razor blade in the bathroom. And this one I hear quite often, and that is, you know, I can just, with the turn of the steering wheel, I can end it all. Mm -hmm. And I think, why would someone then ever even consider that? And I hope that that perspective helps the understanding and helps answer that question. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, when someone's at that point where they say, okay, not one more second, something that the most harmful to them looks in their mind like the best possible thing for them. It's the only way out. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, so here's, it's really quite heartbreaking. It's difficult to talk about this because if I think about myself at this point, a couple of things go on, you know? It puts an end to my own pain, Mm -hmm. but it puts an end to the pain that I cause others. Mm -hmm. And so I might, I know it's twisted, I know it's not right thinking, but I know I'm not worthy of love and life, and I then end the pain and the burden of others even having to interact with me or mm-hmm. breathe the same air. I'm doing them a favor as well. And you know what the, the lie is? The world would be better off without me. My family would be better off without me. It's absolutely untrue. But at that moment, I do think that that's really what I'm thinking as well. I just Mm -hmm. mentioned that because I've been to, anyway, I don't know how many times that I've heard in the aftermath, and I do just have great compassion for those who are left in the aftermath to have to deal with this, and that's another reason why we need to understand, we need to talk, we need to get ahead of the... epidemic because of people that are left in the aftermath with all of these um, unanswered questions. But I do hear quite often, Mm -hmm. well, it's the most selfish thing that anybody can do. And, you know, I can certainly see that Mm -hmm. um, from that perspective. Absolutely. But you you might want to put on some different glasses and kind of see from the person's perspective, that that's probably not really in their thinking. We always tend to look at the world from our own eyes. And it's very difficult for us to look at the world from other people's eyes, right? And I'll tell you this, that is why I'm so glad just to have this time. Oh, yeah. Really, just let's look at this from an from a different perspective. Yeah, it's it's important to see things from other perspectives, right? Because for, for those who are left, it always looks selfish. Mm-hmm. But from the person doing it, it's never meant to be selfish. Or, you know, maybe sometimes. But most often, the person's doing it because they're trying to make life better for those left behind. Because that's how their perspective has sort of twisted things. I do. I think about, you know, Jared Wilson. I've just been grieving that ever since um, 
just uh, even a founder of his own um, yeah. ministry for people that struggle with depression, anxiety, suicide. Anthem of Hope, I think, is the yeah. the ministry for and those Harvest that, Fellowship. You know, right? Maybe mm-hmm. aren't familiar with him. He is a pastor who committed suicide right. at probably, age thirty. At age thirty, mm-hmm. not not too long ago. Yes, maybe six, it was, six months ago, yeah. if that long. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually started a ministry to yeah. help people struggling Anthem with suicide. And, uh, you know, so it made the news when, when the events ha- occurred yeah. and happened. But. And Greg Laurie, his pastor, I don't know how you could have a better pastor mm-hmm. on the planet. But, uh, um, and then to just hear from his wife and how devastated she was, what kept her going was just watching the last video he made of him playing with his kids the night before he... It was the day of... I guess it was he took his own life that evening, and she kept mm-hmm. watching the video of that over and over to help get her through the the darkest of times. But mm-hmm. um, just another perspective that I just want to share, maybe emphasize, is how these lies, I think it impacts the soul. The soul is mind, will, and emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think the this abuse and trauma just penetrates the deepest part of our heart and soul so that that really becomes our central focus the beautiful thing though is is we we don't have time to talk about it today maybe I'll ask you <laughs> about that but there's a whole other side to intervention the intervention that's the key to the intervention is to process the trauma to identify the trauma, the details of the trauma, the moment of the trauma, and the lie that was embedded at the time, Mm -hmm. that is one of the first most important steps of intervention in dealing with those. I think who struggle with addiction, but I also think those who struggle with suicide, suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. as well. So I would like to talk about it, intervention at some point, uh, what that would look like. Maybe at a different time, but I'm going to yeah. trust you on so that. So I think uh, sort of correlating with your idea on the soul and with that, you know, um, I believe that we're all created in God's image, right? I think that's the typical Christian worldview is that we're created in God's image. Mm-hmm. But that image of God in humanity got broken at the fall. And as a result, we're all born in God's image, but with an image that is broken. So we reflect God when we are in walking and walking in God's will, doing things that reflect God's nature and character. And when we do things that don't reflect God's nature and character, we are emphasizing the ways in which we are broken and not like God because of sin. And I think that people who struggle specifically with suicide uh, or people that struggle with addiction, you know, for whatever reason, God's image in them is broken in such a way that they don't understand their value from God's perspective. And as a result, they get into this prison of pain they get trapped and um, they don't realize or understand or maybe aren't able to understand who they are as a child of God. Amen. There's a scripture when you were talking that came to mind and it's this scripture on what does it profit a man or a woman mm-hmm. to gain the whole world or um, engage in America's greatest go-to addictions and sacrifice our soul. And I see suicide as a sacrifice 
of the soul. In, in what way? Um, so that really it's, um, when I think about a sacrifice of, of the soul, it's, it's what I have done to myself to um, avoid pain and numb pain and soothe pain. Um, what I've done to myself spiritually um, can be reflected what I would do to myself physically. Mm -hmm. But people have said this. It's, it's this um, phrase that, um, that suicide, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think suicide is a temporary solution that's devoid of an eternal perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think tying in the soul and kind of what we do that is harmful is harmful to our soul, our mind, yeah. will, and emotion. So once again, the intervention side of it is how do we nourish our soul and feed our soul? Mm -hmm. Um, so that really that's also part of the intervention. And the well. idea that suicide would be a solution that, you know, to a temporary problem I think is even misguided because if in fact people are dealing with future, pro you know, future pain, yes. past pain, past, present pain, present, future, uh, you, know, you name it. They're dealing with anxiety, mm -hmm. they're dealing with... Um, that's a great the, point. Know, they're that's stuck thanks. in this. It's not temporary. Like they're, they're it could be lifelong, or it could be it could be instantaneous with an overwhelming painful event, or mm -hmm. and that could trigger, or it can be a lifelong struggle. Yeah, so I think that uh, you know we oftentimes in society and culture try to you know come up with these little quick antidotes, you know, to, uh, to big problems that, that exist or persist in the culture, suicide being one of many. And the, the problem with any kind of short little statement that says, you know, I've got it all figured out in this little sentence, um, those sentences may be helpful on a, on a cursory level, but, you know, everybody's situation is different. And once you start getting into, getting into the weeds of life, um, nothing is as as is cut and dry and you know black and white as it is on the surface. So for today, I think we've gotten a good introduction into what is the you know sort of the basic understanding, at least some of the uh, information from the perspective. You know, we've get, we've been given a point of view of uh, what it's like to go through this prison of pain, and we've get, been given a glimpse into how the mind works as someone who struggles. I said, I think what we'll do is we'll have a part two. Oh, yeah. And, hey, uh, thanks. In the part two, we'll talk about how we can help those we may see who are struggling. Well, that's great. I'm always happy to be invited back. It's a tough topic. <laughs> it is, but mm -hmm. it's an important topic. Yes. It's a good topic, and it's an overwhelming topic in our culture. It's true. 